First John chapter two is where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, we started a short series in the book of First John last Sunday, and uh, we're not going through every single verse, but we're just kind of pulling out some chunks. And so, just to kind of reorient us a little bit this morning, in case you weren't here or in case you slept since then, like me, um, the book of First John is a letter written by the Apostle John to. Uh, it's a very specific group of people, and, and these were uh, believers that, uh, because of just the persecution going on around them and th- different things going on around them, um, he, he was writing to uh, reassure them of, of their, their belief in Jesus Christ. That they, uh, they were surrounded by a group that was at least at one point part of uh, the, the Christian community, and uh, they had kind of withdrawn. Right? Some of these people that were once claimed to be believers and followers of Jesus had, had kind of backed up on that. And they, uh, it's not necessarily that they, they weren't followers in, in the sense that they said, we don't believe in, in God anymore, we don't believe in Jesus anymore. They might even still consider themselves believers, but the things they were teaching did not line up with what John is addressing as this is what it means to really believe. This is what it means to walk in the truth. And so uh, John writes this letters to... Uh, assure the readers that they are walking in the truth. It's kind of like this diagnostic test. Like if you want to know that you are following Jesus, read this letter. That's kind of what 1 John uh, is about. And so uh, he, what he's kind of doing in the letter is he's, he's really like a parent. Right? If, you, if you're a parent, um, maybe you've, you've had one of these scenarios where your kids come to you and they like they're presenting some misinformation that they heard or some half-truth that they heard, and you got to do like damage control cleanup. You're like, that's, that's not entirely true, right? Uh, that's kind of what John's doing here. Right? you got uh, these believers. that he, he calls them his children often in these letters. Uh, and, and he's in this letter, what he's doing, he's just kind of doing some damage control. He's saying, hey, this, uh, what you heard is not entirely true. Let me do some course correction, and, and let's get on the same path so that you can know for sure that you're walking in the truth, all right? In fact, uh, John summarizes the purpose of his letter in, uh, in actually chapter 5, verse 13. Right? He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Right? That's the, the point of the letter, to confirm, we said this last week, to confirm the saints, right? So that those who are believers would have this added assurance, like confidence that they're walking in the truth of, of who God is, who they are, and who Jesus is and what he came to do. So that gets us back on the same page, hopefully. Uh, and we're going to look at uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 12. So we'll read verses 12 through, well, we'll look at verses 12 through 17, but we're going to look at verses 12 through 14 first. All right, here's, here's what John writes. It says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So, if you were... Like I said, we're not going verse by verse through the book of 1 John, but if you were to read through chapter 1, kind of what we did last week, and if you read into chapter 2, you would get to these verses, 12 through 14, and they would feel sort of out of place. 
Right, John's kind of carrying along this stream of thought, and all of a sudden he just stops, and he starts addressing little children and fathers and young men. And you're like, what is John doing here? Right, and then he repeats himself over and over. It's kind of redundant. Right, so these verses, like at a glance, surface, surface level, they fill out of place, but, but really what John's doing here is, is significant because uh, his point in this section is he's going he's gonna to give us some do's and don'ts here in just a minute. Right, he's going to give us a, here's something you don't do, Here's something that you, I'm, I'm not, you know what I'm saying, all right? Something that you do, all right? But uh, I walked right into that one. Um, but he's, he's going to give us a list of do's and don'ts, but before he gets there, what he's doing is he's reaffirming to the audience in 1 John of their identity, who they are in Christ, right? Because here's the deal, it, the reality is, who you are in Christ comes before what you do for Christ. Right? Who you are in Christ comes before what you do for Christ. So he, he writes to remind them of all that is already theirs because they have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, for the hope of eternal life. And his point is saying, you are believers. If you place your trust in Jesus for the salvation of your soul, like, this is who you are. He says that they, uh, they have a personal, like, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He says that their sins have been forgiven. He says that they have uh, received strength to overcome the evil one. Right? He's reminding them of, of their identity in Christ because, again, who you are in Christ comes before what you do for Christ. Right? And I'm convinced, like, we need to know this because I'm convinced one of the enemies, like, greatest works of deception is to make us believe that it's only after we do so much, it's only after we check all the boxes, it's only after we achieve some level of uh, spiritual achievement or accomplishment or maturity, it's only then that God will actually love us, accept us, forgive us of our sins. All right? And, and maybe we don't actually like, profess that, but sometimes we live like it. We live like, I've got to achieve some sort of level of, of whatever, spiritual maturity. And only then when I get there will God really actually forgive me. And so we sort of live with this sort of kind of guilt over us. And I, mean, I think that's one of the, uh, the tactics of the enemy is to make us believe that it's only after we achieve a certain place that God will actually forgive us and do what he said he was going to do. And if we, if we believe that, if we live like that, it usually leads to, to one of two things. Right, the first thing is we'll just live in sort of this, uh, like I said, with this guilt or this frustration because we never quite get to that level that we feel like we should be at. Right? Or when you take that to the extreme, then oftentimes this is when people uh, reject God altogether because they think that God is just a God of uh, do this, don't do this. And if you mess that up in any way, then God doesn't love, he doesn't forgive. Right? This, most of us probably know some people that would say like, I'm not interested in God. I'm not interested in all the rules and the laws and the do's and don'ts. Right? And that comes from this idea that uh, when we believe we've got to achieve some level before God forgives. Right? So that's one extreme. Right? If, we, if we live like we believe this lie from the enemy. The other extreme is if we think that God approves of us, loves us, forgives us based on us achieving some level, then what happens is well, then when actually we start to grow a little bit and we start to experience some maturity, it, it leads to spiritual pride 
and arrogance. And we read the, the Pharisees in, in the Bible. Some of the only people that Jesus ever confronted in the Bible were people who thought that they had it all together. The Pharisees. Right? And if we, if we believe the lie of the enemy that we've got to get to some certain level of maturity before God will actually approve of us, love, of, love us, and forgive us, and it can lead to this sort of, once we actually start to experience some of that, there's just some arrogance that can creep up into us. Right? And both of those are the wrong Response. That's why John is reminding his, his readers here, your identity is secure, not because of anything that you've done, not because of anything you haven't done, but because of what Jesus did for you. Right? That's the gospel. The gospel, is, the gospel is not a to-do list, is what I'm saying. It's not a, I've got to do all these things, and then after I check off all these things, then God will forgive me. Right? The gospel, by its very it's Good news. It's an announcement. It's not a list of what you have to do. It's a list of what Jesus has already done for you. All that's left for us to do is actually to step into it. To recognize our need for a Savior. And to step into to believe that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient payment for all my sins. That repent and believe. That's our response. And so... The reason, that we see this all throughout the Bible. You read Paul's letter, he's constantly, the first half of his letters, he's constantly, here's who, are you, who you are in Christ. Here's what it means to, uh, to be a follower of Christ. He's always identity first, and then the do's and don'ts come after that. And so that's what John's doing here. It's identity first, and then he's going to give us some do's and don'ts. Because, and the, here's the thing, just to kind of bring us back to the center. Does God have expected behaviors, attitudes, responses of his people? Yes. Right? But those flow out of a relationship that already exists. We repent and believe, and then our response is to live in obedience to his commands. It's like, um, again, parents. I'm sorry, these are just examples I've got. Okay? Parents with their kids. Right? There are expectations in our home. I wish they were met more frequently than, than they are. But there are expectations in our home. Like certain attitudes, certain behaviors. But those are, uh, my children do not earn a relationship with me by keeping those. Right? The relationship comes before those. And it's because they are in a relationship with me that there are expectations placed on them. Right? You know who I don't have expectations for? Kids that aren't mine. Like when the neighborhood kids come over, I'm like, I, right? I have rules for my kids. And so this is, this is what I'm getting at. I'm, I'm belaboring the point, but hopefully you get it. Our identity precedes activity. Right? Or, or the following and obedience of God's commands flows out of a relationship with him. So now that John has reaffirmed our identity... He's going to give us, like I said, some, some do's and some don'ts. All right? He's actually, first he's going to give us uh, something that we should not do, and then he's going to give us something that we should do. All right? So this is verses 15 through 17. John writes this. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the flesh, 
of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here we've got, uh, we've got the first to do, right? It's, it's this. It's do not love the world. Right? I don't even have to like, there's no assembly required for that application point. Do not love the world. Right, that's what John says to do. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was talking about how sometimes you read the Bible and you're like, how do I apply this? And sometimes it's not always so cut and dry. Here it's pretty cut and dry. John's just telling us, here's what you do not do. Do not love the world. But then he, he doesn't just leave us there. He gives us, some, sort of, he gives us some qualifiers. Like, what does it mean to love the world or to love the things of the world? Right, he, in verse 16, he lists off three things. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Right? So he says, do not love the world. And then he gives us sort of, here's, here's what makes up the world. Three things. And I'll give a little, uh, hopefully a little background on some of these. And we'll clarify it a little bit. Right? He says, first thing, the desires of the flesh. Right? The de- desires of the flesh, this would refer to... Um, these desires or cravings that we have that uh, when we fulfill them or pursue them in ways contrary to God's word and God's will, right, they, they would be considered sinful. So some examples, um, right, sexual desire that gives way to sexual immorality. Right? So that would be one example. Right? This, this desire that's pursued in a way outside of God's intended design Right? It would be a, a desire of the flesh. There's things like physical appetite. Right? Physical appetite, not a bad thing. God gave us appetites, but we can pursue that in ways that are outside of God's plan. That would be gluttony. Probably a sin we don't preach on enough. Right? Okay? With, especially with Halloween coming up uh, and all the candy. Right? We've got, uh, he talks about a, a desire to provide. Right? The or that's just an example. He doesn't talk about it. That's just an example of it, right? A, a desire to provide for your family, that's a good desire. But again, when pursued further than or outside of God's boundaries can lead to greed, right? I'm going to hang on to whatever I've got. I'm not going to be generous because, right, I've got to get mine, right? So it's just desires of the flesh or any of these desires that in and of themselves may not be bad desires, but when they're pursued outside of God's intended purposes, then they they do become bad. They become sinful, right? There's desires of the flesh. There's desires of the eyes. So this would be uh, any desire or craving that's sort of activated uh, by the, the things that we see, right? There's a reason why Jesus talked about the eye as a lamp to the body, right? The things that we let into our eyes can, and they can determine the course of our lives in a lot of ways, right? So he says the desires of the eyes would be considered things of this world. This is uh, things that we, sinful cravings activated by what we see. It could be lust. It could be um, envy or coveting, right? That would, it's just this desire for things that, uh, that God in his providence has not entrusted to us, right? And we, we see those things and we want those things, even though God has said these are not yours to have, right? So desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and then the last thing he says is the pride of life. 
Or my Bible has a little footnote. It might be pride of possessions in your Bible, depending on what your translation is. Uh, But it's just this idea of uh, anything that you have or you've accomplished or you've attained that would cause you to say, look at me. It may be your status. It may be your your position. It may be your power. It may be your uh, possessions, your wealth. I mean, we could go on and on and on. It's anything in your life that would cause you to say, look what I've done, look who I am, look what I've made. It's it's to direct everything towards yourself, right? Because the root word there is is pride. It's it's making yourself the point of it all. And there's a a danger in that. This is is the things that, that God says, or that John says, inspired by God the Holy Spirit. These are the things that make up the things of the world, the things that we are to, uh, to not love. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the, the pride of life, pride of possession. So uh, one of the things that, that I find fascinating is that these, these are not new. Right? These, these sort of things that tempt us from the world, they've been around forever. And, and to give sort of some credibility to that, Genesis 3.6, and this is when like, the very first temptation, Adam and Eve, says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, all right, so there's some desires of the flesh, right, an appetite, a craving. When, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, so you've got the desire of the eyes, right, kind of activated by, by what she sees, and she saw that the tree was uh, to be desired to make one wise. So there you got the pride of life, right? Look at me. Look how wise I am. Look how smart, intelligent. Look how I've got it all together. And when she saw that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of it, of its fruit, and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. All right, so these things that, that John is saying, hey, do not love these things. They've been around forever, right? And just as as Adam and Eve wrestled with them, just as John's audience wrestled with them, you and I, these are things that we have to work hard not to let consume our lives. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. Because, as John says in verse, uh, back in verse 15, he says, if anyone loves the world, if you pursue, if the pattern of your life is to pursue hard after the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, then man, according to John, if, if that's what you're running towards, then, then the, love, the love of the world, then, then the love of the Father is not <clears throat> in you. And the reason is because these are two, these are antithetical to one another. Like you can't move towards both at the same time. Right? You've got the things of the world, you've got the things of God or the will of God we're going to talk about in just a second. And, and to walk towards one is to walk away from the other. You cannot, you cannot pursue love, chase after the things of the world, and still claim to, to be moving towards the love of God. Right? They're, they're opposite directions. And so here's, here's a good summary I found this week. I'm just talking about the danger of uh, loving the world. This is from an author, C.J. Mahaney. He's... Uh, pastor of a church up in Louisville, but here's what he writes. He says, Worldliness, then, is a love for this fallen world, 
It's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rules and replaces it with our own. It exalts our opinions above God's truth. It elevates our sinful desires for the things of this fallen world above God's commands and promises. That's, that's the danger of loving the things of the world. It's essentially to take God off his throne and to put us there. I'm going to do what I want, what satisfies me, what brings me pleasure, what brings me satisfaction. Right? That's the danger of loving the world. So that's why John says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Right? So we've got, we know what not to do. Now John's going to take us to what to do. All right, let's go to verse 17. He says this, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. All right, so we, we know what not to do. Do not love the things of the world, but then he takes us to what we are to do, and that's the will of God. Right? He says it again, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Or another way we could say that is, whoever does the will of God experiences eternal life. Because right? that's the point of John's letter, to assure his readers that they're walking in the truth and that that truth leads to eternal life. So what John's saying here is, I mean, you want to you have assurance that you're walking towards eternal life, you want to have confidence that you will experience eternal life, then do the will of God. Because whoever does the will of God abides forever. So then the question becomes, okay, what is the will of God? Right? And, and here, we, like we have, if you've been in church for a long time, sometimes we have this weird sort of relationship with the will of God. Here's what I mean. Sometimes we treat the will of God like it's some sort of, it's out there and it's ethereal and I've got to like try and figure out what it is, right? Like, and, and I get that, right? Because God does have a, a will, like he has a plan and a purpose for your life and for my life, every, everyone in here. Like he, he does. And like we don't always know what that is, right? We don't always know like this is exactly what God wants me to do with my life in terms of, when it comes to the direction we take or the, this decision that's on our plate or, or whatever. And so sometimes when we, we think of the will of God, we think it is like this, it's this thing we've got to uh, try to discern or try to figure out. And, and I don't want to do the wrong thing because if I do the wrong thing, then it's going to mess up whatever God had planned for me. And, and I get that. There's a, there's, a, there's a part of that. But then there's also a part of God's will that's like, it's, at least part of it's already been laid out for us. In here, right? That's what, that's what much of the Bible is, is God just revealing, like, hey, here's what it looks like to live in relationship with me. Here's what it looks like to, to follow me. Here's what it looks like to walk in obedience to my commands. In other words, this is my will for you. Live in this. Walk in this. So while when it comes to, to God's will for your life, you may not know like everything that God's going to call you to someday. You may not know what he wants from you 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, what you do know is what he wants from you today. 
It's to, to love him, to follow him, to walk in obedience to his commands. One of the, just to put it uh, simply, one of the authors I like to read, Kevin DeYoung, he, he said this. He said, God's will for your life. You ready? This is mind-blowing. God's will for your life is your sanctification. In other words, for all the plans that God might have for your life that you don't know about yet, there's at least one that you do know because it's laid out in the pages of the Bible. God's will for your life as a follower of Jesus Christ is that you would just be conformed more and more into his image. That's God's will for you. And, in, and, it's, and it's the pages of Scripture are littered with what it looks like to live in God's will, to live in obedience to his commands, to, live, uh, to keep in step with the Spirit, to, uh, to, to love, here, to put it simply, here's what it is to do God's will. is to love God with all your heart and your mind and your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's God's will for your life. At a foundational level, that's what it is. Right? That's what, and according to John, that's what loving God above all else and loving your neighbor as yourself, that's what leads to eternal life. Walking in that, doing God's will. Loving God above all else, loving your neighbor as yourself. And it's, it's in doing that, it's in doing that, that John says you will abide forever. You will experience all the promises of eternal life. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and you keep walking in that, what uh, I'm quoting a lot of authors. I like to read, guys. Uh, Eugene Peterson, just one of the things he talks about is just this thing called a long obedience in the same direction. Right? That's the Christian life. Put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and then to continue walking in that a long obedience in the same direction, loving God above all else, loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to do the will of God. And as you continue in that for the rest of your days, John says, that's where you'll abide forever. That's where you'll experience eternal life. So here's where we're going to kind of bring us to a conclusion today. We're going to do a little differently because it's what I've got for you is a bit of a case study. Anybody have case studies you had to do in school? Like study, if you don't know what a case study is, it's basically you take a principle or a theory and you apply it to a real life situation. Okay? I was in business, my undergrads in business, and so we said all kinds of case studies on business owners that didn't know what they were doing and what we should have done differently. Anyways, beside the point, we're going to do a case study this morning. And it's actually, it is a real life example, uh, but it's found in the pages of Scripture, and it's a case study on a man you may or may not have heard of uh, named Demas. All right, Demas is not a name that is, his name doesn't show up a lot in the Bible. We actually, uh, it only pops up three times once in the book of Colossians, once in the book of Philemon, and then once in uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy. And so we don't know all the details about Demas's life, we don't know a lot of his backstory, uh, we don't there's a lot we don't know. But what we do know about Demas from specifically the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon is that um, at some point in Demas's life, he was a partner to Paul. He, 
uh, was a, a partner in gospel ministry. He supported Paul's ministry. He helped Paul as he traveled around uh, the, the kind of the known world at that time, planting churches, preaching the gospel, uh, seeing people saved and baptized. Uh, Demas supported that. He was all in. Right? He was a friend of Paul. He, he was a, uh, a promoter of the gospel message, a supporter of that message, especially through Paul's ministry. All right, so that's what we do know about Demas. But what we also know is at some point in his life, there was a, a turn. A turn from what he once was to what he became. And here's how Paul says it in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. He says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. That's the last we hear of Demas in the Bible. Did he come back? I don't know. We don't know how Demas' story ends, but what we do know is at some point in his life, he, what he knew to be true, the gospel ministry, right, the, the truth that, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and, and promoting that and preaching that message to the known world at that time, at some point in Demas' life, he decided that the, the things the enemy had to offer in this present world were more satisfying, more worthy of pursuing than the things that God offered in eternal life. That was Demas' story. And the temptation that, that Demas faced is the same temptation that you and I face. To choose the things that are brief and temporary and transient and fleeting, to choose those things here and now over what God offers to his children in eternal life. You and I face that, that same temptation. It's, it's what Paul says in Romans 1 is our temptation is to choose the creation over the creator. That's what Demas did. That's what John is warning his audience against. And that's what John is warning us against. Against choosing the temporary over the eternal. Right? Maybe, and just before we, we pray and, and sing, maybe you're here this morning you kind of do that quick inventory of your life, and you're like, man, that's me. I've given myself over to pursuit of the things of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of, of life or pride of possessions. You, you look at your life, and you've just been fast-tracking towards that, right? Whatever you can get to make you happy, whatever you can get to satisfy you, whatever you can get to, uh, to get to some level where you just want everyone to look at you because look what you've done. Look what you've made of yourself. Look what you've achieved. And if that's you this morning, I would just say that, that, man, God, through John's letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is just calling you to repent, to turn from that. Because again, you, you can't pursue the things of the world and simultaneously be confident that you've experienced the love of God. You can't pursue the things of the world while at the same time uh, walk in assurance that you are a child of God. That's his, his point in the letter. I'm not saying you don't have moments of your life where you walk the wrong, wrong way and then you realize it, you repent, you turn. That's what it means and to go back to what you know to be true. But, but what John is saying is like, 
You cannot pursue the things of the world as a pattern of your life and then with any confidence say, I am a child of God. All those things that he said at the beginning, their identity in Christ, that they're forgiven, that they're, uh, they're strengthened, that they've overcome the evil one. John's point is like, you cannot walk towards the things of the world day after day, after week, after month, after year. You cannot go that direction and then with any confidence say that I'm a child of God. So if you're here this morning and you've been pursuing the things of the world, I think what, what John would say to you, what what God would say to you, more importantly, through John's word, is to repent, to turn from your sin, to turn back to following God's good, perfect, and pleasing will for your life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and uh, just grateful for your word. I'm grateful for just moments like this where, uh, and just the, the truth of your word is so clear, uh, where, where the application is not mysterious. It's not anything that we have to really dig that deep for. It's, it's there. Do not love the world, but do the will of God. So, Father, I pray that as we come to this time of response, um, Lord, I, I pray that we would do that. I pray that we would, uh, we would take an assessment or an inventory of our lives and and really be willing to, to say, where am I following the things of this world? Where, do, where am I loving uh, the desires of the flesh, the desires of my eyes? Where am I loving the, the pride of, of life or the pride in possessions? Where, Lord, reveal these things to us by your Spirit. Where are we loving and following and pursuing and chasing the things of the world? And then, Father, give us the courage and the boldness to to acknowledge that, to confess that, to repent and turn from that, and to do your will. Right? To, to love you above all else. Uh, to love others as we love ourselves. Lord, help us to do that this morning. Pray that you would uh, show us what you want from us, how you want us to respond. Maybe there's someone here this morning that's never trusted in you as Savior. They've that identity we talked about at the beginning is not yet theirs. I pray that they would step into that this morning. And that they would know that they don't have to achieve some level of, of uh, accomplishment before you are willing to forgive. I pray that they would believe the good news of the gospel. That, that while we are yet sinners, that Jesus died for us. And they would come, confess their need for a Savior. And that you would meet them there. So, Father, however you want us to respond this morning and, and trust that your spirit would, uh, would move us to that point. Lord, we love you. We pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.